So, it's finally here. The day you take off those student epaulets and replace them with the ones that you've worked so hard for. It's come around a little bit quicker than you expected, but the day is here nonetheless. For three years, you've been a crew of three. Now, it's just the two of you. Your mentor isn't looking over your shoulder anymore. The next job that comes down that MDT will be yours. The next time you book out morphine, it'll be yours. And the next patient that you see will be yours. Now what? Thoughts like these are probably going through the heads of many student HCPs up and down the country. It certainly did ours when we made our transition from student to practitioner. And this year, more than ever, students are qualifying in unprecedentedly difficult times. This week is not about clinical skills or evidence base. This week, it's all about you. We've had to think about some things we wish we'd been told when we were newly qualified, and some things that we've learnt along the way, and some fears that weren't as bad as we'd built them up to be in our head. So, let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. Uh, My name's Alex, I'm a lead paramedic and practice placement educator. So as we said in the introduction this week, we are not necessarily talking about the latest evidence, we're not necessarily talking about a clinical subject. We have had a little think about some pieces of advice that we wish we'd had when we first qualified that we think might be beneficial for those of you that are uh, just about to qualify or have just joined the the COVID register. We appreciate it's a really daunting time and there's possibly a lot of, you know, thoughts and anxieties and worries going around your head at the minute. So hopefully we might address a few points that that you might be feeling a bit nervous about. I remember my uh, first day as a qualified paramedic and stepping on an ambulance and got a call from control to back up a tech crew to go and give morphine. I was sat there thinking to myself, well, I can't give morphine, I need a paramedic, and then looked at my shoulders and saw the paramedic epaulets and was like, oh yeah, that's me now. So uh, it's uh, it's normal to uh, to have that feeling just when you first register. Do you, do you remember, Josh, when we were at um, university, they always bandied around, you know, you need to be prepared because your first call could be that paediatric cardiac arrest and... Uh, I signed on for my first shift as a paramedic and the first call that came through was a paediatric cardiac arrest, which luckily it turned out not to be, but I'm literally a living example. Like in so many things, Alex. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so let's get on to our pieces of advice. We've come up with 10 that we're going to have a little chat about. And then at the end, we've asked some of our colleagues we work with one piece of advice that they would give to themselves uh, if they could go back and, and speak to them themselves on their first day of being a paramedic. So Alex, do you want to start with our first point? Yeah, sure. So the first thing I would say to anyone who's feeling nervous about qualifying is don't panic. It's not as bad as you think it's going to be. If you didn't know all the things that your university thought you should know at this point, then you wouldn't be qualifying. And remember that you can always take a second. There's no situation, no matter how bad, whether it's a cardiac arrest or any other situation you you care to think of, there's almost no situation where you can't just take a second to think and go, what should I do next? Definitely. And you can always go back to basics. If you're really stuck, start again. Go back to airway, breathing, circulation, disability exposure, work your way through and manage problems as you find them. So never worry, just restart, go back through and and do the basics well. And I, I always say to people, if you end up having to sit in the back of an ambulance with a patient and just run through A, B, C, D, E, a, B, C, D, E, just over and over again on the way to hospital. If that's if that's what it comes to, then there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, it's not ideal. Well, I, you, I mean, you say it's not ideal, but I definitely remember being in that situation with certainly my first few at-miss jobs and even nowadays, just being in the back of the truck going, A, okay, that's fine. B, I'm doing everything I can with that. C, and, go, and then you get to the bottom and then you're like, okay, now what do I do? And you just restart. And and even if you're going through doing that as you're on your way to hospital, whether that be 10 minutes, 20 minutes, if you're just running through that and 
keep coming up with okay there's genuinely nothing more that i can do for this patient well actually that's quite a good position to be in and that might feel a little bit abnormal for you or it might feel a little bit strange to just be stuck in that cycle of going a b c d e but actually that's that's your job is to look after those those points until you get to hospital um it it prevents it prevents you blanking as well if if you yeah if you're not sure what to do once you start doing something the cogs will start working again so I like to verbalise my A to E assessment out loud because not only then does it reaffirm to myself what I'm doing and it also reaffirms to my team what's going on and everyone can follow it. Yeah, and that actually leads us really nicely into my second piece of advice, which would just be to listen. Listen to the people around you, whether that's your colleagues, people on scene or family members or the, or the patient. When you're working at full bandwidth and you've got a lot on your mind, which is going to happen quite a lot, a lot more often as a newly qualified paramedic. Whilst you're working in that state of, of fully occupied bandwidth, other people around you may notice something, they may have other ideas, particularly when it comes to things around the patient or things like extrication or ideas. I always like to, if, I, if I'm at something like a cardiac arrest, I'll always verbalise what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, ask, you know, have I missed anything? Is Can anyone think of anything? Has anyone got any ideas? Um, and I think it's I think it's really important that we just listen to people around us because other people, particularly other people in the job, will also have a lot of experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and even if you're not, you you know, you might not be there with with other paramedics. There might be uh, your your ECA colleague, or you might be backed up by a PSV, or even to be honest, community first responders. There's a, there's a lot of experience potentially in that room of people who have seen this situation before, and you know they may not have the clinical background to suggest treatment options but they might be able to say well last time we were in this situation we did x y and z uh have you considered that and i i really like your point alex about when when you're on those jobs and it doesn't just have to be cardiac arrests i think we see this a lot in team skills cardiac arrest is the example that's given but it can be a poorly patient or it can be even our primary and urgent care jobs asking the other people that are on scene speaking to your, your ECA colleague are you happy with that plan this is what I'm thinking are there any ideas or concerns that you've got from your point of view that you think I might have missed and and directing that question to them directly is a really important part I think of that that flight flat hierarchy that we have to be creating on scene and I have not just when I was a newly qualified paramedic I have repeatedly been saved by my ECA colleague who has said oh did you think about this or I've just been speaking to the next of kin and they mentioned X, Y, and Z and that's changed the plan or modified the plan somehow. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I I think that's a really important bit of advice. Just to add in to your point there about community first responders, this isn't one of our official 10 pieces of advice, but just something to remember. Although they may not be employed by the ambulance service, a lot of community first responders do have a lot of other experience, like you said, and they some of them are also healthcare professionals who just aren't working in their day-to-day job. So definitely listen to what everyone has to say. You can listen to what everyone has to say. It doesn't mean you have to act on it. That's the that's the key thing. You know, listen to everything and then make a decision. Completely agree. A great example I have of this was when you were my student, Josh, and I was going down a tangent of um of a patient with back pain that was about to discharge and you pointed out to me some symptoms that I'd actually missed and it completely changed the plan and I think we ended up conveying the patient to hospital so remember other people might pick up on stuff from the scene that other that others have missed and give you information that's vital to changing or making your decision not the first time I've saved your career Simon and not the last oh, what am I doing without you Point number three my bit of advice is follow up your patients and do this from day one So patient follow-up is notoriously hard for us. Sometimes we won't be going back to the same hospital in that shift or potentially for quite a long time. Sometimes we can't find the members of staff that we handed over to or the patient might have left the department. The entire shift may have handed over by the time we go back there. Sometimes we can't remember the patient's name. So I appreciate patient follow-up is really difficult for us pre-hospitally. However, each time we don't follow a patient up, we're missing out on valuable learning, especially if we didn't know what was going on in that situation or whether or not going to hospital was the right decision. It doesn't have to take long. We only need to find out what happened, what the working impression was, 
And my advice would be to do this from day one. Make this a part of your everyday shift, just a normal part of your working week, because it's really quite difficult to start doing this later down the line when you've got the confidence and the experience to, to start asking those questions. So you'll learn so much from following these patients up and, and it will help skyrocket your learning. Yeah, Josh, I'll just jump on there as well. Now, in a lot of places, there are feedback mechanisms in place. That may not be the case at a hospital that you frequently attend. So what we had in our local area is one of our paramedics. He liaised with the hospital and with the trust that we work for. And he's actually set up something called the paramedic post box. And what that is, is you, when you drop a patient off at the hospital, you obtain their permission and document it appropriately. And then you put some basic details like NHS number and the presenting complaint or your initial presentation on a piece of paper, which goes into a locked box. And then certain members of staff at the hospital have access to that. And on a sort of monthly basis, they'll go through and they will send you an email with a brief outline of what happened to that patient. Uh, Patient X was discharged with antibiotics or admitted to cardiac care along those lines. So just because that feedback mechanism doesn't exist already in the area that you work in or the hospital that you frequently visit doesn't mean that it can't be initiated and like Josh said it is an absolutely invaluable area for learning. If it doesn't exist completely agree Alex then maybe look at it and create it as a service. In my uh, emergency department we've got a um, like a tablet that's fixed to a pole by the nurses station and ambulance crews and ED clinicians can put patient details in there that they've managed and it goes off and then they gain patient's consent further down the line and if the patient consents then it we will email the person feedback so it's a really good system so uh, obviously it sounds like there's some really good feedback systems out there uh, alex you've mentioned about one in your local area and simon it sounds like your hospital's got one as well i know that somewhere in the east midlands there's a more formal feedback system fem feedback and I think the the guys up there are quite happy for people to get in touch and try and replicate that formally within other trust areas. And if there's these formal feedback systems in place, we obviously we need to be using those because they're the they're the approved uh, methods for getting feedback. We'll probably get higher quality feedback as well. There will be places where there isn't these formalised feedback systems, and we can come up against patient confidentiality and data protection regulations understandably so and that can be difficult to to get feedback whilst maintaining those regulations and and patient protections but i don't think that needs to just be a black and white barrier to to stopping us trying to get some good feedback so i think it's completely appropriate to ask the patient's permission especially if they're still in the department do you mind if i find out what happened and and what their working diagnosis is or or if the patient themselves know if you go and speak to them the next time you're back in the department i think that's completely appropriate as well but we we just need to make sure that however we're getting this feedback and the feedback that we're getting is is in keeping with data protection and, and and patient confidentiality and one of the things that I used to do when I was working on the road lots of trusts have systems for the patient to get in contact uh, and have leaflets around on station a, a lot of them are you know how are we doing what was your patient experience like and and as I was handing those out to patients which I did every time uh, I had a patient contact I would just say look look we'd really appreciate your feedback let me know how how you thought we were doing how how the you know the whole of your care was but also we very rarely get to find out what happened to you and it's really important for us to get that feedback so if you don't mind if you do get in touch can you just let us know what happened and, and what the rest of your journey was like if, if you're happy to share that information with me quite often you you would get a, a nice bit of insight into what what the rest of the patient's journey was and that was really quite beneficial I think you can gauge the patients that will be really receptive and, and happy to help you with learning and, and that is generally most patients. We see it quite a lot in the department when someone comes in with a rarer presentation or a new, something that requires a skill that maybe the juniors or us as trainees, ACPs need to, need to see. The person that's doing it often will say to the patient, and, and I've done it as well, do you mind if so-and-so or, or a couple of the doctors or a couple of the trainees come and watch just because it's interesting? And patients generally are really receptive to it. As long as you gain their consent, 
most patients will help you with learning and they're really keen uh, a lot of people to help out so um i think it's uh, it's it's always good to ask your patient and and learn that way so on to our next point then and this again is from me and i would suggest that you don't make decisions as if your house is on the line make them in the best interests of your patient so regularly i hear colleagues say that they've made decisions because they weren't willing to risk their mortgage on it or they didn't want to put their job on the line. And I really feel that this is not the right mindset for us to have, not only for our patients, but also for our own mental health and well-being. I'd hate to go through every shift thinking that every decision I made boiled down to whether or not I have a roof over my head or not, because it really doesn't. Thinking about our decisions this way is catastrophizing and leads to overly defensive practice and a huge amount of stress on us as the practitioner, which is really not good for our long-term career. An acceptable and appropriate risk profile is an important part of being an autonomous practitioner and being 100% risk adverse is not always a good thing. All of our decisions should be made with our patient's interests at heart, not our own. And if you make informed decisions with informed patients that have truly got the patient's best interest at the center of what you're doing then that's good practice and you then don't need to worry about your house or your job being on the line i hear banded around by uh, a lot of staff about the fear of losing your registration based upon a decision and i think it's sometimes quite good to go and read some of the hcpc hearings and I, i do this every year to um some students at a university i deliver a lecture at that actually I've never, ever found a case where a paramedic has been struck off for isolated clinical error. It's always something normally to do with unprofessionalism or attitude or behavior. Or when we talk about incompetence, it's complete incompetence, like failing to document and failing to maintain standards on a wide range of jobs, which makes them actually not competent to be a paramedic. If you make one clinical error, but actually at the time it was reasoned decision what you made that that will not result in you losing your registration and i think people fear that and and it's actually a fear that doesn't need to exist there's a difference between defensive practice which is bad for patients and defensible practice which is where you've made a reasoned decision documented it well with a really good safety net which we'll come on to later and the patient then deteriorates or things change that's absolutely fine because it was a reasoned decision and people looking at that will, will come to the same conclusion. Whereas defensive practice is not patient-centred and it's not good for the patient. I think it's probably something that we're going to end up discussing a lot in future, defensive versus defensible practice. I think another thing to discuss, my, my next point of advice would be to think about what the plan that you have offers the patient. So if you're going to take the patient to an emergency department, what does the emergency department what does the hospital have to offer that patient what's a gp going to offer that patient i think that's a really useful thing i always say to people when you're phoning a doctor an out of hours gp or, or a patient's own gp or, or phoning a hospital think about what you want them to do you shouldn't be ringing them and just asking what shall i do next you should have an idea in mind so if you're ringing up a gp ring up and say I'm here with Mrs. Jones, who has a surgical wound from uh, a, a procedure three days ago, which is now red and inflamed, and I think it might be a bit infected. Since it's Friday, uh, I thought it might be quite useful to potentially look at a, co- a three-day course of antibiotics. What do you think about that? Rather than, I'm here with a patient with an infected surgical wound, what shall I do about it? Which I, I realise sounds a little bit insulting, but that, that's that's the point I'm trying to make, is that it's, it's useful to have a a plan in mind and also think about what the option that you've chosen offers the patient so if you're going to a hospital well what are they going to do for that patient are they going to take images are they going to admit the patient or are they just going to see them briefly in in A&E and then turn them around and send them home again and if that is the case is that necessarily the best option sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but it's just something really important to think about so my my next point is possibly a little bit kooky but bear with me and that's to keep a shift diary so in my current role I'm back to being a student again and I'm in an unfamiliar working environment with an unfamiliar skill set I'm learning a new area of practice and I'm surrounded by experienced colleagues who seem to practice effortlessly whereas I'm using most of my brain power just to stay afloat 
and I'm right back to square one on my Dunning-Kruger curve, not really knowing what I don't know, and some days feeling quite unconfident in my own practice. So I know how many of you listening to this will feel. And something that I do now that I, I wish I'd done when I first qualified is keep a shift diary. The reason I think this is a useful idea is because your confidence is going to go on a bit of a roller coaster over the next few months. One day you might manage an MI fantastically and get them all the way to cath labs, strutting home like you've really got to grips with your, your job. And the next day you might be at a complicated medical social care job, feeling like you've just scraped through, having spent the majority of it uncertain about what to do. And this is a normal part of learning. As you get more experience and you get more knowledgeable, you'll notice more gaps in your practice and have have these realizations of, oh my God, how have I got this far without knowing that? And do I know anything at all? What else don't I know? And these are all perfectly normal feelings. And I think by keeping a diary and reflecting on your shifts, it allows you to look back and keep track of your confidence. You'll see how your attitudes and decision making has changed. And I certainly found it helpful for those shifts where you've had a bit of a wobbler and and have come home thinking you don't know one end of your paramedic bag to the other. And I found it a useful way of letting go of work. I think that's a really important part of staying healthy in this job. So just by spending five minutes scribbling some notes in your car before I before I go home, I feel it's stopped me taking those thoughts and those those worries about my performance and my confidence home with me. I think it's a really good point, Josh. And it's it's we should reassure everyone that it's normal to have peaks and troughs in your confidence levels. And this happens on a daily basis. This is an ongoing learning process. So just because you've passed university doesn't mean it stops. Like you, Josh, I'm starting in a new trainee post where I am working in a emergency department somewhere that I've never worked before. I've always been pre-hospital or in urgent care, and it can be quite daunting at times. But there are lots of people around to help you, lots of experience around to help you. And I think keeping a, a diary... One for, as you said, for for your own looking back and for confidence building and to reflect on your feelings, but also for your own learning is really, really valuable. And it's absolutely fine to have peaks and troughs in confidence. So don't feel just because you go home one day and things haven't necessarily gone to plan that your entire career is, is not going to plan. So my next piece of advice is to talk about clinical guidelines. And there's a, a saying that I've heard you say, Josh, that I really like. So do you want to tell everyone what that is? Yeah. So guidelines guide, clinicians decide. And, and, I, and it rhymes, so it's got to be true. <laughs> absolutely. And I really like that statement. So we're all aware that there are clinical guidelines, whether those are local ambulance service and your individual trust or JR Calc or national guidelines such as NICE and RCUK. There's various bits of evidence-based practice out there that we can follow. However, our focus should always be on patient-centered care and doing what's right for the patient. So Guidelines are there to help us make decisions, but they are not absolute rules that always have to be followed. Normally, they are evidence-based and they're the right care, but sometimes it is acceptable to deviate from them as long as you can justify that decision, usually by using other guidelines or other pieces of evidence that may be more up-to-date or be more beneficial to the patient. There's a really good video of this on the College of Paramedics website. So if you're a member of the College of Paramedics and you go to um, their uh, CPD hub, you can find a video by Liz Harris, who is the head of professional standards. And I think the video is entitled Guidelines, Not Tramlines. And it's a really good watch just to see that actually it is perfectly acceptable with justification to step outside of guidelines when it is what is right for the patient. What I would recommend is that if you do step outside of guidelines, that you thoroughly document that and you justify your thought process and why that was necessary. I think mostly it's JR Calc, isn't it? You know, JR Calc is is quite a useful tool and and that's exactly what it is. It's a tool for our practice and it's a it's it's a guidance document, but it is not the only guidance document that's out there. And you speak to most healthcare practitioners, they'll have never heard of it because it's very pre-hospital focused. So like you were saying Simon it is it is good for a lot of what we do but there are other things out there that are slightly different or slightly uh, have a slightly wider scope for us that we we might feel is right to use and that's absolutely fine but but as you've said um, acknowledging that we're going outside of that that guidance in particular and having very good reasons and justifications for doing so is uh, is really important. 
The one area we do need to be careful of is with medications. So with PGDs, for example, those are legally binding documents and therefore they have to be followed. So those should be treated as protocols. But most other guidelines are exactly that. They are guidelines, not protocols. Yeah, and I think that's a really important delineation to to make, Simon. So, particularly with with drugs and PGDs, there 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 is legal aspects to that. Even coming, you know, away from drugs and other areas of guidance, what we're not saying is it's fine to just work outside of a guideline because you can and because it makes you feel like a good, you know, like a big practitioner because you're not following the guidance. That that absolutely isn't what we're saying. What we are saying is that guidelines are for the majority and they work quite well for the majority but as we know there are patients and patient groups that sit outside of what occurs commonly and so as as autonomous practitioners we should be comfortable and able to work outside uh, of that area tailoring our practice to suit but we are only doing that if it's reasons evidenced and and proportionate to it to what is required And I think if you're unsure of those decisions or you don't feel comfortable with those decisions, that's absolutely fine. And this brings us on to our next point, which is the importance of shared decision making. We should be quite comfortable sharing our decisions. And and just because you are seeking advice or input from another practitioner doesn't mean that, you, you know, it, it, it isn't a failure and it doesn't mean that you are not performing your job adequately. Shared decision making is is an absolutely valid aspect of clinical care and it's a really important part of clinical care, especially when we're accessing those higher level decisions. I know that the longer that I've been qualified, the more shared decision making I've I've done. And that's because I'm getting more comfortable sharing decisions and, and having those conversations with people, but also because I'm I'm trying to access those extra levels of care that are outside of my typical sphere of competence. And so discussing with a senior is quite a useful tool and absolutely something that we should be doing to get the right care to our patients and there's lots of things that are available to us so you it might be a case of discussing with the patient's gp uh, it might be a case of calling out of hours or speaking to a, a paramedic practitioner or a nurse practitioner on the phone or or even i know simon you get regular calls from crews on the road through to your a&e through to majors to to discuss things that you might do in hospital to help them make that decision yeah there's always other people you can speak to in hospital like the hospital specialities if you've got a child and you want to discuss maybe whether they need admission pediatrics are usually always really receptive to phoning if you phone the um, on-call reg and just tell them what your thought process is the, the plan you've been considering and i think it's really important as exactly what alex said earlier don't go to these people and go make the decision for me that's not what shared decision making is yeah, about. It's absolutely. not. Yeah. It's, it's not about buck passing. It's about making, getting senior advice to, to empower you to make the decision. It's still your decision. Mm, definitely, it's not ideal to to ring a, another provider, particularly someone who hasn't actually seen the patient. If you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, that are receiving a phone call about a patient that they can't see. They don't know anything about, they're relying on everything that you tell them. And then if you ring them up and ask them to make a decision for you, you're probably not going to get a decision that you're happy with because the pa- the clinician that you're speaking to can't see that patient. So it's always really important to ring up with, I, th- I think, with a with a plan in mind. So ring, ring the GP, ring the hospital, whoever it is that you're going to speak to, and you say, this is patient XYZ, this is what's wrong with them, this is what I think we should do. Are you happy with that plan? Do you want to change that plan? Do you think there's anything that I've missed, et cetera, et cetera, rather than ringing them and just asking them essentially asking them what to do because you can choose not to follow that advice if you if you need to if you're still not comfortable you can choose not to follow it but you should be using that person and documenting the conversation with that person to help make a supported decision that's what it's there for and it's really really valuable but make sure you document it in your notes how the conversation went and it's not just about shared decisions with other professionals it can be about shared decision making with the patient and 
with obviously in certain situations the patient's family it's perfectly fine to express your views to a patient and then negotiate a management plan ask the patient their opinion and we'll come on to this a little bit more in a minute but asking the patient their opinion is absolutely fine and getting them on board patients have to be to a certain degree responsible for their own health care so giving them options and asking their opinion is a really good way to have shared decision making with your patient and something that I think touches on that is something that you will occasionally see in practice is people convincing the patient to say no because they don't want to take them to the hospital or they feel the hospital isn't uh, necessary and they don't want to necessarily have to justify that so it's a very it's almost an easy out to get the patient to sign a uh, sign a refusal form and then say well the patient refused uh, so you know any decision that they make is on them and and leave them at home it's it's not great practice because remember that any decision that a person makes really has to be an informed decision so they have to be informed of the risks and the benefits of the decision that they're making so to just sign something off and say I don't think you need to go to hospital just sign here you've refused brilliant right see you later it's not it's not a hallmark of good practice so by all means take on board what the patient is saying and what the patient thinks but remember at the end of the day the decision does rest with you as the registered clinician so you have to make a decision that you are comfortable with in your practice and something else that's really helpful really important when you are sharing decision making is standardized tools one that we quite often use is isbar so that is very briefly that's identify yourself and your grade which is always important explain the situation discuss the background of the patient your assessment findings, and then importantly, bear in mind what we were saying before about uh, always having a plan in mind, your recommendation. So again, very quickly, that's identify yourself and your grade, discuss the situation, the background of the patient, your assessment, and then your recommendation. And I think something that is just while we're on this topic that's really useful to or important to clarify is that it's, it's absolutely fine to not know what's going on. And that's a normal feeling that you may encounter a lot as an NQP and you will still encounter throughout your career. And that is OK. What matters is is how you deal with that. And so shared decision making is absolutely a, a, a useful tool to do that. And and it, it is fine to discuss cases with, with more experienced practitioners to just get some advice and get some input and insight. But I think it's probably relevant to say that it is also okay to take that patient elsewhere for a more in-depth assessment. And if that means going to A&E because you are unclear about how to safeguard this patient at home or you're unclear about what care and tests this patient needs to be safe, then I think it is reasonable to, to go to A&E if you've exhausted or looked into those those other shared decision making options that kind of brings it back round to our point at the start that if you do that it's really important that you then follow up and don't just rest on your laurels of okay I got through that job you then need to take it upon yourself to to figure out was this the right decision what can I do next time was it the right thing for my patient and and improve your knowledge as a result of that Paul yeah and I um I was under the impression that actually the the default of of you can go to hospital was something that that everyone was relatively comfortable with but me and you were having a conversation the other day Josh that actually you didn't feel that way when you you first qualified and you felt quite a lot of pressure yeah Um, so I as an NQP I felt a phenomenal amount of pressure to keep patients at home and I think that's because you know we we're told from an early stage that part of us doing the the university route and part of you know the paramedic profession moving to band six eventually is is because you're making these high level decisions and high level decisions mean non-conveyance and that's certainly how I felt early on and and that's absolutely not how I feel now and that's not the case now that the, the correct decisions and the best interest decisions are the most important sometimes that will mean not going to hospital but sometimes that will mean going to hospital and I, I think it's important to voice that, that you may feel pressure to leave your patients at home or to not take them to A&E because we know how busy it is. We know how much stress the NHS is under. But actually, that that may not be the right thing for your patient 
because of what either what you think is going on or because you don't feel able to adequately safely leave them at home and in an informed manner leave them at home and that's okay as well but you just need to to use all of the options that are available to you and if you can't get in contact with someone a bit more experienced to to share that decision and and have a discussion then conveyance to A&E I think is is appropriate. So Simon you've already kind of touched on it a little bit and and that brings us on to our next point which is to take on board every patient's ideas concerns and expectations. So do you want to explain that a little bit more? So ideas concerns and expectations or ICE is a really good way of starting shared decision making with your patient what it mainly functions around is finding out what the patient feels is needed we're going to start with ideas it's about asking the patient well what do you think is causing the problem now it may be that they have a really accurate picture of what's going on they may have lived with a condition for a long time and be an absolute expert on it and can guide you in your management plan or it could be the fact that it's completely their information is is completely off track and off 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 piste you know it could be well i've developed this mild headache and i think i've got a brain tumor and that's absolutely fine but you need to know your starting position because if the patient is saying oh i've googled this headache and i think i've got a brain tumor that leads you on to the next point which is their concerns their concerns are i've got a brain tumor and while you may sit there as a clinician and say well i really don't think that's the case that's what the patient's worried about so because you now know what they're worried about you can formulate a plan to help reassure that worry. In the idea section, find a way of asking the patient. Some people will say, do you have any idea of what's going on? And some patients will reply, well, no, that's why I've called you. And that's absolutely fine. But because it does give you an understanding that the patient hasn't really thought about it, they're just maybe worried about their symptoms. But some patients will give you valuable information. It's quite hard sometimes to word these phrases well into the consultation but they you will find there are natural points where they slot in as we've already mentioned concerns this is really important to establish because this is going to be the bit where you're basically reassuring the patient it links nicely into the last bit which is expectations so this is what the patient is hoping you're going to do for them or the relative is hoping you're going to do for their family member a good example i had of this is i walked into an incident once with a patient that had they had a mild UTI and that had caused them to have a fall the patient's daughter had arrived on scene she was really angry about the time she'd had to wait for an ambulance and as soon as I walked in she went oh it's about time you got here I want you to take my mum to hospital now a lot of people will instantly get their back up with that with that attitude from a patient but what we need to realize is is that's just worry that's just concern so we need to alleviate those concerns and formulate a management plan that they're in agreement with so this is where ideas concerns and expectations comes in so this was something that you taught me a few years ago and and since i've started to integrate it into my clinical practice i have had far fewer standoffs for what of a better word between the patient wanting to do one thing and me saying well that's not appropriate i think we need to do this thing and and that's because you you had assessed the situation far far earlier in the consultation and were able to sort of head off and and, and word far better what you think is is the most appropriate course of action so i think it's a really powerful tool like you said it, it can be difficult to get those questions in it could be difficult to phrase them correctly sometimes without sounding antagonistic but it is a really useful tool and, and I now do it in, in every one of my patient consultations that are clearly primary or urgent care. I'm not, I'm not asking uh, unconscious people what their ideas, concerns or expectations are. Just Yeah, it, um, it definitely it's has to be not overly useful. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has to be done in the right, uh, the right patient cohort. Um, and when you become really experienced at it, it's, it's fantastic, the outcomes you can have. So let's move on to our final point. And I think it's probably quite appropriate that we've left it to the end. And that's safety netting. This is not just an afterthought. It's the most important thing that you'll write on your paperwork. So I see a lot of people's concept of safety netting in their clinical documentation. I read a lot of patient clinical records working in an ED. So all the patients come in my ambulance I will, that I'm seeing, I will read their patient clinical record. And I just think a lot of people don't document their plans and their safety netting properly. So by safety netting, we don't mean 
any problems call 999 or 999 SOS. Things like that just aren't acceptable to write. They're not robust enough, both from a patient care perspective, but also a medico legal perspective. Safety netting really comes down to three components. And I've taken these components from Roger Neighbors' model of consultation. It's about looking at your differentials and your then final clinical impression and thinking, what is the normal course of that process? So what do I expect to happen? Inform the patient what you expect to happen. So for example, if it's a sprained ankle, do you expect it to be better in approximately so many weeks? But documenting that, and you can get that from evidence-based sources such as NHS Choices, Patient UK. Document in the normal course what the patient can expect. Then as part of that, what care the patient needs. So it might be I'd like you to take this regular analgesia for this time. I'd like you to go and speak to your GP. I'd like you to do this. And make sure your patient is aware of that. The second part of safety netting is to explain to the patient what happens if either I'm wrong as the clinician or the diagnosis deteriorates. We all know in medicine that the UTI that you see on the Tuesday by the Wednesday could have deteriorated into a urosepsis. That is a risk with any infection and in any medical condition can get worse. That's not necessarily a failing because at the time you saw the patient, things weren't pointing that way and you're expecting the patient to improve, which is why you've told them this is what should happen if we follow this course. However, it's then important to tell the patient, this shouldn't happen. And this is what you need to be worried about if this happens. So give them specific worsening advice, ideally in writing, if you can do that. If we take wound care as an example, it might be, from my practice, I've closed this wound using sutures. It should start to get better in maybe 10 to 14 days. And at the 10 to 14 day mark, I'd like you to go and see your practice nurse to have the sutures removed. That's what they should expect. Now we come on to the what we shouldn't expect bit. However, what I want you to look out for is the following. If the wound becomes red, swollen, painful, if there's redness spreading around the area, if there's any pus or discharge, or the wound splits open or starts to bleed, those are signs maybe of infection or problems with the wound, and you need to do something about that. The final point then is what the patient needs to do about that. And it may be you need to call your GP if any of that happens. It might be you need to call 111. It might be you need to call us back on 999. It might be that you need to attend the local emergency department. But give a patient a specific options to do in those situations. So to summarise that, explain what you think the likely course is and how they manage their condition. Explain what happens if it goes wrong or things deteriorate and then give them an option what to do and reassure them that it's perfectly fine to use that option. So I tell my patients, we're open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. If you have any problems with the stuff we've talked about, absolutely come back and see us and we're more than happy to see you. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that if that safety net does end up being activated like you've already kind of touched on some that's that's not necessarily a problem i i remember a job where uh, an nqp colleague had gone out to a patient during their day shift uh, who and had diagnosed them with a lower respiratory tract infection and had basically said you know contact your GP the following day to get some antibiotics because they were quite medically well and had given some really good ongoing care advice including when to call us back and i'd been activated on the night shift the following day so sort of 24 hours or so after and gone to this patient and they were probably a mild grade sepsis they had some signs that it was potentially coming on to being a community acquired pneumonia so they had some sort of increased vocal fremitus their sats were sort of 92 93 percent and they were a bit tachycardic and i uh, uh, elected to send them in at that point and this uh, NQP, who was then on the night shift the next day, backed me up and felt awful that she hadn't taken this patient in the, the following day. And, uh, you know, I just explained to her that this patient didn't need to go into hospital yesterday. If I'd come to her, I'd have probably made the same decision. But you did a really good safety net. Your safety net has been activated and we've caught this patient before she's 
too unwell and and now we're moving on to the next stage of care so what you did yesterday was still really really good patient care it's just that your your safety net was activated and that's why we put it there i think as, as you've already said simon we really don't need to think of our safety net as our last bit of paperwork that we just scribble down any problems call 909 we really need to treat this as the most important part of our documentation and the most important thing that we're explaining to our patients okay so let's summarize don't panic listen to others follow up your patients from day one guidelines guide clinicians decide remember guidelines are exactly that they're not protocols make your decisions in the best interests of your patient not on fear of personal consequence keep a shift diary to reflect on both the dips and the peaks in your confidence take on board every patient's ideas concerns and expectations And using that, think about what your plan offers the patient. Don't be afraid to share your decision making. There's loads of advice out there, not just from clinicians, but also from non-clinical members of staff on scene and family. Gather that information and use it. And finally, really emphasise your safety netting in your plan. So hopefully some of those have been some useful pieces of advice for you, especially if you're about to start practising as a newly qualified paramedic. I guess all that's left to say is try and enjoy it. This is a really, really great job. And the more comfortable you get in your own clinical practice, the more you'll be able to appreciate the benefits of this amazing career. Thanks very much for listening. You can really help support the podcast by liking and following us on Spotify and leaving a comment on our podcast on the App Store. That really helps us and means we can continue to create these CPD podcasts if you find them useful. You can find links to our other podcasts and our articles on our website, which is generalbroadcast.org.uk. As always, if you've got any comments or thoughts on this podcast, or if you've got ideas for future podcasts that you think we could make that would be of benefit to you, send us an email at generalbroadcastpodcast@outlook.com. And just before we go, we're going to leave you with a few bits of advice from our colleagues. We asked them for a couple of things that they would tell themselves on their first day as a paramedic if they could. It's all really good advice, and even as someone who's not so newly qualified, it was great to hear these fantastic lessons they've learned along the way. Yeah, definitely. We're, we're really grateful to everyone for all the uh, really good tips, and there's definitely a few things here that uh, I wish I'd been told when I was just starting out in practice. So thanks very much for listening. Take care. Bye from me. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Hi, my name's Sam Harrison, and I've been a paramedic now for four and a half years. We learn from failure, not from success. Every failure can be reflected on and learned from, so make sure that you find the positive outcome. Listen, the best communicators often say very little, and be respectful and chat to everybody. Rapport is the key to success. Hi, I'm Rachel, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner and I'm privileged to say I've been a registered paramedic for 15 years. And if I could give you any advice, it would be dream big and aim high. There's so many things that you can do now that you're a paramedic, make the most of every opportunity, and most importantly, just have fun with it. Hello, my name's Steve. I currently work as a trainee ACP. I've worked for an ambulance service for nearly 20 years. My advice for anybody starting in the ambulance service or starting their career as an ambulance paramedic right now would be to listen to everyone. Listen to the paramedics, listen to the technicians, listen to the ECAs. They've all got stories to tell about how they've dealt with tricky situations and complex patients. All the cases you see throughout your career will be unique. There's a strong chance that they've been in similar situations at some point and they'll have many tips and tricks to assist your decision making. These can range from clinical insights all the way through to practical tips such as how not to get locked into a nursing home at three o'clock in the morning and the best way to memorise codes. The best way to do this is to listen to your colleagues and to pick the right time to listen. I'm Ed. I qualified as a paramedic seven months ago. My main advice to anyone transitioning from student to NQP is know when to ask for help. Don't see this as a sign of weakness or lack of knowledge. Your patients will be grateful that you're speaking to a specialist for advice. 
On the reverse of that, remember that you are coming out with some of the most up-to-date evidence in pre-hospital medicine. Empower and educate your colleagues with this knowledge. But most of all, remember why you signed up for this career, because it's easy to hear the negativity from your colleagues who have lost this passion. I'm Jessica thomas Morn, and I qualified as a paramedic four years ago. It's easy to fall into the cycle of finishing a long shift, getting home, googling everything you didn't know that day, reading your university notes, watching an ambulance programme on TV and eventually going to bed, only to get up at 5am the next day and do it all again. Try not to let this happen. Relax while you're home and work hard while at work. Take one job at a time, debrief and learn with your colleagues after every patient, and ultimately feel proud that you've made it through each job and that your years of hard work are paying off. Hello, my name is Simon Critchell. I've been qualified for eight years. Um, I currently work as an emergency medicine training advanced clinical practitioner. I have previously worked as a paramedic in the local ambulance service. When treating somebody in a care home or nursing home, it's important to ask yourself several fundamental questions. What quality of life do they have? What comorbidities do they have? What do the family advocate for that potential patient? And what are my options at hospital? Will they go on to a ventilator? Will they require non-inventive ventilation? Will they get IV antibiotics and oral fluids? And actually, what can I safely provide in the home with GP assistance or other care providers? Remember, hospital is not always the best option um, you might think it's the best option and the safest, but it's not without risk. It's important to do what the patient prefers and to be truly holistic. Shared decision-making and ideas, concerns and expectations will aid with this process and allow safe care. Hi everyone, my name's Luke. I've been a paramedic for three years. My bit of advice to any new paramedic would be make sure when you reflect whether it's at the end of a job or the end of a day, you recognise the good you've done um, as well as the things that you can improve on. It's really easy to be your own worst critic and not recognise the things that you have done well at and the good um, and benefits that you've brought to a, a patient encounter. So don't be too hard on yourself. Do be honest, do reflect, but make sure part of that reflection is a recognition of, of what you've done well. My name's Ellie. I've been a paramedic for three years. You're going to come across situations where you're not sure what the answer is. There's always someone you can call, but even so, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. That's why we safeguard. Keep on asking questions, keep learning. This career is one long learning curve. And finally, this job can be hard. Invest in friendships both inside and outside of work and know that everybody wants to help you succeed.